Welcome to The Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. We have a great guest on today from my uh, New Jersey uh, stomping grounds, Dr. Shafiq Arab, uh, Chief Digital Officer and System CIO in EVP of Tough Medicine, and also the Chime CIO of the Year. Dr. Rob, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's a long time. Put a smile on my face when I looked at your face. Go ahead. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, man. Hey, I want to start off by acknowledging uh, CIO of the Year. The press release says, known as a driver of change, Shafiq has continually sought opportunities to innovate, champion equity, and create culturally competent care, all while fostering growth and community involvement. Next line uh, kind of hit my soul here. Uh, his career is proof of being a CIO is not about technology. It's about making meaningful difference in people's lives. That's what we're all here for. So congratulations on on your recognition and for your contribution to uh, CARE. Thank you. So that, that said a lot, uh, community involvement. Tell us a little bit about how you go about that, because I, I'm a believer that you know, once that patient walks out of that facility, care doesn't uh, doesn't yep. stop. Yep. It's it's really when it starts, right? Uh, so, so tell us a little bit more uh, of your approach. So give you, you know, my friend. So I'm going to use some words, and then I'll try to explain with two examples. One is that what are we all trying to do? We're all trying to do one thing: is that we're trying to be healthy and and have a good quality of life. And then we are all trying to figure out those who can afford it and those who can't. And then sometimes we sit down and say words like experience. Then we use the words like efficiency. Then we use words like economy. Then we use the word employed productivity. Then we use words like personalized. Then when we become very sophisticated, then we use community genomics. So we become sophisticated by the minute. And then we talk about value-based care, ACO, all those words we use. Bottom line is that in healthcare is the environment where people live, is the zip code that people live. And we are dictated by our genomics, our proteomics, our documentation of health record, our social determinants of health, our environment, the food we eat and the natural practices that we do, like drinking water, walking, and then what the environment provides us, whether it's a health desert or not. Bottom line is that we are creature of habits. Some of us like to walk, some of us like to drive, some of us don't have cars, we have to take buses, some of us take public transportation. So when you talk about community involvement, I'll give you two examples, one in Chicago and the other one here at uh, I work for Tufts Medicine, so in Boston. People uh, who live in the west side of Chicago uh, are not that affluent. So what we did is that we, we went and talked to all the churches that are religious leaders, because number one thing is to create trust. 
among the place where you work. And trust is earned, not gotten. So we got to know them. And then we got to know a school there uh, where children go to school, 10th grade, 9th grade. And we started teaching there, healthcare and IT. Took about 80 students into, into our place, taught them how to dress, how to talk, how to eat, how to sit down, and then mentored them to learn basic IT. And then unbeknownst to us, they were very smart children or young men and women, smarter than a lot of people I've met in my life. And yet we thought that they are from that west side of Chicago, but they were phenomenal people. So much so, we got them all certified in Epic. They all have jobs. They got $87,000 paid jobs. Those who did not do Epic, they did cybersecurity. And all of a sudden, they became the sole provider of their family. And they had health insurance. All of a sudden, after they graduated, they all went to Malcolm X College. Not only did they graduate from the college, two, three of them went to become doctors in medical school. Community involvement does not mean just healthcare. It needs security. It needs economy. It needs uh, understanding of healthcare. Like you and I know that I, children can directly go to medical school from high school. That knowledge I have because I'm a medical doctor and my children, if they want to go, there are colleges that offer that directly. Information like that is not possible. When I came here at Tufts, uh, we again went to the uh, Chinatown, took about 10 students from there and then make, made them certified in AWS. So that's one way of saying, but here's what we learned. If you want to do a lung cancer screening test, nobody came to us in Chicago. So we were thinking why people are not coming because in that community, we never formed the trust and never talked to the community leaders in there to do a basic screening of lung cancer. So when you're asking about community involvement, we have to see when you provide care, how the chain of care transformation actually works. That means drug adherence. Can they, is there a pharmacy there or not? That basic knowledge, do they have cell phones or not? Technology, I could build an app, but if it does not connect to the cell phone, never works. In, in the state of Illinois, Medicaid patients do get cell phones. So I can just talk about this all day or night. But to answer your question is that you genuinely have to have a presence for care transition, for care transformation within the community and the total trust of the community leaders and the people who live there. And to understand in the olden days, we used to have community health workers who used to work that. That's one aspect of it. But then you tie it to, I'll give you one more example. We went to a, a place where people get refuge. Otherwise, people call it a shelter. Everybody would check their blood pressure. Only 10% were normal, 90% were abnormal. Within a year after we developed the repo, 90% became normal and 10% were abnormal at that time by getting them the right care, right place, right connectivity, internet, all those things so they can connect to their mothership or their doctors. I hope I answered that question in a totally different way. Yeah, very uh, interesting and compelling. It reminds me, I'm going to go off on a tangent here for a second. I went in New Jersey. I was on the Board of Education for uh, 14 years. 
And I was the county, the Monmouth County representative, legislative representative. And New Jersey at the time had uh, a rebuild schools uh, funding apparatus. So we were uh, we were at a an urban school district, brand new school building. The my legislator was there, and he comes to me and says, "It's not going to make any difference. It's a brand new shiny building, but these kids are going to come into school for five five hours from a broken home." and not get fed and that's why we have toasters on the on the counters here so that they can get fed when they come to school and after five hours six hours of schooling they're going to go back to that broken the cycle doesn't change it's just in a brand new shell right but the the point is still the same and to your point in that and, and that's actually when i went to my senator and said hey anytime we do school rehabilitation, if you will, by building new facilities, we have ha- we have to have a corresponding economic development program in that community to kind of reshape the the whole structure. It's not just about the, the new shell of the building. It's about the community and, and how they all interact and intertwine with each other. And you're saying the same thing. I'm a I'm a personal believer that the change in healthcare really comes about relative to patient engagement. It's not what happens inside the brick and mortar. As you know, the the average Medicare patient, five chronic conditions, sees nine different doctors, spends only 15 hours in a given year in front of their doctors. What happens in the other 8,745 hours? That's really where wellness is achieved, is when you're outside of the doctor's eye. So how do you engage them over there to maximize the benefit to, uh, to wellness? So I'm going to switch that to a totally different answer, and that will blow your mind away. I totally believe in AI, and I'll explain that to you in two seconds. Thank God for large language model. Thank God for AI. Thank God for people to understand that data is important. And thank God for higher computing. And thank God the technology has improved. What happened to us in the past, uh, we didn't have fast acting computers. We didn't have high GPU. We didn't have those technology that would allow us to compute large amount of information. So the engagement part, the virtual part, the uh, I'll give you an example so you can understand that in one second. Uh, I'm sure you take some medication. If not, I take medication. So CVS and Walgreens, they send me a text. Sometimes they say, this drug is not available. I'm calling your doctor to get it changed. Or they will say, do you want a refill? Is that correct? Yeah. Not a single doctor sends you a note, even they know when the prescription will end. Hey, your prescription needs renewal. Do you want an e-visit? Would you like to come in? Can I send you an Uber to pick you up? We don't do that. But that is now possible. That connection, when you leave the home, and when you are in, when you leave the home and you come to the doctor, that connection after you leave the doctor and go to home is now possible. Now, why did I say AI and machine learning and all those things? Because now we have that computational power to understand me. That means it's it's a world of consciousness. You know me personally, my age, my ethnic origin, my habits, my place of residence, my capability to pay, all that is in place. So when you provide care to me, you can also tell me, hey, Shavik, these are the 20 places where you can get free food, where you can get free transportation, which is provided by the government. 
which is also provided by that. There's a there's a software that does that, which is on my app. So now there is an app you can access. You can send a questionnaire. So that connectivity between the provider or the hospital and the care receiver is now possible. On top of it, when they're in a grocery store, they can check and understand what they can eat because food security is also important now. Nutrition security is important now. We are learning about gut biome. We're learning about probiotics, prebiotic. Somebody just said, if you drink water in a bottle, you are ingesting gazillion. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know that, man. So I stopped drinking water bottle after that. You know what I'm saying? So that comprehension and that immediate connectivity is now possible. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So my role in the world that you talk about community and my role, how do I enhance big health systems, big monolithic universities to bridge that gap quickly and immediately? Like even if Medicare wants to go faster, right? Fee-for-service and all that. Why do doctors like fee-for-service? Because they're used to it. That's how they got there. But if you want to make life easy and you want them to par participate in MIPS, for God's sake, make the administrative overhead easy, right? Yeah. So we don't do that. We just don't do that. So thank God. Anyway, but but, but at questions. the same time, when you're talking about fee for service and, you, you know, CMS has set this goal that everybody will be all providers will be in a risk bearing program by 2030. They, I don't know if providers, with all due respect to providers, I, the general provider, that independent provider, you know, you're in a hospital system. You have much more resources than the independent provider. I, I'm not sure they understand how to get to value. What's the pathway to value? And I do believe that there are some programs in a fee-for-service, remote patient monitoring, chronic care management, remote therapeutic monitoring. These are all programs that are available today in a fee-for-service model that could educate the physician and not only educate the physician on what more they can do without, without investing and losing dollars, if you will. And so they can see that balancing act of adopting new care delivery programs patient outcomes and understand how they can get the value, right? Right now, I don't think there's any, there's not a large, you know, back when we first met, you know, in 2008, 2009, it was about HIEs, right? Or, or EHRs, I'm sorry. You know, you know, let's, let's, uh, everybody adopts an EHR. Great. We're all there, right? But, and then we're still 14 years later, still talking about how we could share data, right? But, but the point is, is that, there's no national plan, no leadership that's really driving the mindset of how we all move to value. You mentioned that's CBS right. and, and Rite Aid, you know, with all due respect to them, they're, they're uh, I don't look at them as uh, value-based care oriented. They're, you know, they're very fee-for-service, uh, episodic in nature, not necessarily following me all the way through my care journey. So you are 100% right. Here's what it is. We somehow think that doctor offices are 5,000 doctors. It's not like that. One, one doctor, two doctor, three doctor, four, five. Right. Most practices are like that. You know what I'm saying? Unless you are a hospital-based, like we are, we have a clinically integrated network. We have 2,000 doctors employed, right? So, in but in the rural America or in the urban America, 
if you really want, like I'm sure Medicare is trying its best. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, I think they've been trying for a long time and they can make things better because they are the biggest payer. First, fee-for-service is very profitable. It has always been there. That's what doctors know, right? But if you want people to go towards the other side, number one, make the administrative complexity of a value-based payment ecosystem simple. You yeah. click a button, you get paid. Second, like, you know, if you're trying to do then transitioning upside risk only to fully accountable care is a significant jump. And many providers are challenged by it. So how do you operationalize it? How do you get the revenue and the money to make it happen? There should be some education program for it. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you, yeah. you're expecting a doctor who's already working six hours more than he should a day to figure this out. Then, you know, there should be some kind of relationship with a speciality and subspeciality. You know what I'm saying? And technology is there to connect it, but the policies should, should help with that. I like the health equity part. I like the social determinants of health part. I like all that. I like the SOGI. I like all that that, that the government is trying to, and, and, I, and I understand their, their intent. You know what I'm saying? But until as they have a clear vision of value-based payment, what exactly it means and why and how it is different. Like we have ACOs, right? So, and ACOs are dependent. They get the money for Medicare, right? So if we ACOs are doing get good, then we get more money in Medicare. If ACOs are not doing good, then we get less money in Medicare. You know what I'm saying? So Yeah, yeah but, uh, but I'm a patient, right? I don't, right. uh, you know, the holidays just passed, right? Thanksgiving, uh, Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's. You know, there's a lot of opportunities to engage your neighbors and your family and your friends, right? Ask them about if they know anything about value-based care. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about, right? Yeah. So the point there being is I, I, the doctors are on one side, the health system is on one side trying to change the way in which we deliver care for the betterment of the of the patient, but the patient still sees the same thing. I'm sick. I go to the emergency room. I get admitted and I get discharged. Right? There's no difference between yesterday and today. The the, the question. I, I'm almost a believer that. No, I, I'm not almost. I am a believer that uh, if you've watched the show in the past, The Biggest Loser, the nation needs a, a national program. Right? I, what, what's the stat? 65% of Americans are overweight, uh, X number are, are close to uh, near diabetic or diabetic. It's a, a, So obesity, diabetes, cardio, they're all huge problems. That's where the money is being spent. And so we wait for them to get into the chronic condition stage. Oh, then we'll throw money at it, right? As opposed to the preventative stage. The Biggest Loser program says... Hey, under doctor supervision, now, yes, The Biggest Loser was an intense program, but in a more moderate approach of doctor supervision, diet and exercise, accountability for the patient to ultimately change, right? Because that's really what has to happen, change in the, in the patient's mindset that just because they have diabetes doesn't mean you have to die with it. It can be put in remission. The point is that we need national leadership and a national program. Let's not try and uh, redo Obamacare into Biden care, into Trump care, into next president care, because the only thing that's going to happen in those models is payers are going to get uh, providers are going to get paid less. 
right? And patients have to pay more. That's what happens when you reinvent uh, healthcare. We need change in the context of programs where patients can engage in a meaningful way to change uh, to change their outcomes. What do you think about that? So let me give an example. You mentioned diabetes, right? And uh, it's a, it's it's a growing epidemic in our country. But uh, what I'm saying to you is that how do you manage diabetes? And let me tell you what things can go wrong. You can go blind if the retina is not taken care of. Uh, you can lose sensation in your foot, so you may get gangrene, will cut it off. Your kidney can shut down so that your protein comes out of it. You can have a heart attack, you have a stroke, and then you're at a higher risk of getting all kinds of COVID and you name it, you're ready for it, right? So how do you take care of diabetes? I'm, I'm coming to my point. I'll tell you when you said we need a higher authority. Insurance companies, commercial payers, they have to make money every year. It's not a multi-year thing for them. So technology-wise, so that's why technology is important and patient is important and patient awareness is important. Like, how do you know your sugar is high or low? So what do we do usually? We go to a doctor who does a, uh, without eating breakfast, they'll take your blood, blood and tell you your lipid, your sugar, and then they will tell you HB1AC. Come see me in 90 days or 60 days or 180 days. In the meantime, you have, no, you have no freaking clue whether your sugar is up or low, or uh, or if you get somebody gives you something to prick on it for the first month, you are pricking yourself. After that, to hell with it. That's, that's your right. that's your typical person. Or some are religious; they will do that. Then came the uh, Libre and the Dexacom. Try go try getting it from the insurance company. You can't get it unless you are rich or you can afford it, right? So a normal person should have done the following. Uh, rich people do this. In the morning when they get up, they take a Libre, put it on the arm, they know the sugar. They say it's 90. Thank God, I am under control. If you're 120, take six units of insulin. 180, take six units of insulin. Or in the morning, they'll take a Jardians so they can pee out the glucose. During the day, once or twice, they will check their sugar. But they just tapping the phone, they know it. And before they eat lunch or dinner, they take a little insulin so that so that the sugar never goes up 180. Because if you take it after you eat it, what good it is? Already went up, right? So there is something known as postparental diabetes. I know it. I'm a doctor. But we don't teach that to our, uh, or we might, but, but, but people don't have way to measure that. They will never know, right? So just to get that approved, that didn't work out. Then what happened? GLP-1 came in. All rich people who wanted to lose weight or who can afford it, they started buying it off the, off the market. It's actually used for diabetes control, you know, because when you put it in, then what it does, it, the, the small cells of islets of Langerhand that are left in your pancreas, what it does, it says, come on, produce some more insulin so that your own body can manage it, right? But how do you know you're managing it? Again, uh, with Dexacom or with uh, uh, with uh, Flextile Libre, nobody will give it to you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you can't no, I agree. afford so it. So, doctor, yeah. So, doctor, uh, you don't know this, but my father uh, was a diabetic, and uh, he was uh, he did uh, dialysis at home. And uh, my argument, uh, and my audience knows this: diabetes does not hurt, and therefore, I will not go to the doctor. Uh, right, I might do it on a quarterly basis or a twice a year basis, but diabetes doesn't hurt. But in the last five years, 
one leg, second leg, arm, and, and two fingers on the other hand. And then you got to convert the dining room into a bedroom. You got you to gotta put a bathroom downstairs in the house. There's a whole host of ramifications. And people in the urban districts, as I, uh, as I, a previous guest had said, who is a uh, civil rights leader, had said, "Hey, I go to the I go to the deli down in, in my urban neighborhood. They don't they have 66 flavors of beer. They don't have lettuce and tomatoes and apples and oranges. So access to care is not just about the doctor's office. It's about the community, is that, which is where we uh, where we uh, started this so, conversation. So, Dom, and that so is thoughts why, on that? Yeah. So, Tom, that is why the equalizer in all this game is the patient." Without that, nothing is going to change. Second, education of the patient. Third, access to technology that allows anybody from anywhere in the world to get care from anywhere. Like, you know, if you and to understand what services are available and then all the videos and all the YouTubes that my children watch to learn everything and the TikTok and everything else is all available. So the access to Internet is important. The reason I, when you ask to, when you ask me, I'm never proud of technology. I'm now, I talk about community and people. The reason behind is that what is the equalizer? The patient and the technology. What it does suddenly, it improves my knowledge. Then I know what to do about it. Then I know where to go about it. And then on my side, from the healthcare side, we know how to reach you. We know how to provide the care that you need. So it becomes a two-way street, right? And here is the part that people don't know. Medicaid pays, Medicare pays, commercial payer also pay. It's not that they don't pay. The thing is, and the VA pays, Veteran Affairs also pays. You know what I'm saying? We just have to connect that. And to yeah. connect that, and, and we need to connect that early, not after you lost two legs. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So no, that is why, that's why, cancer awareness, diabetes awareness. I am such a believer in AI and thank God for virtual care. Thank God for the for the availability of that. That has to improve. And all this together incorporated in the life of a primary care, in the life of a nurse practitioner, in the life of a community health worker, in the life of a pharmacist, we have to allow those people also to become part of the healthcare chain. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to have to stop it there, doctor. I, I'm going to close it with amen on that one, because I, I think you were spot on. I, I look forward to seeing uh, more of what you do. And uh, you're always welcome to come back on the program and to uh, talk about uh, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and and the, and, and further educating the consumer uh, who listens to this program. So thanks again, Dr. Rob, uh, for, uh, for joining this program. Have a great day. Tom, thank you for having me. That's today's shift. I appreciate the audience taking the time to tune in. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune back in at the healthcarenowradio.com at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week. And be sure to check out the program page at thevirtualshift.co. As well, remember to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at FoleyTom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.